he's doing this, oh my God, this custard French toast. It riffs off of the egg custard bao that you get at dim sum, but he stuffs it with French toast and fries the whole thing. Oh, it's so good. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Yes, Bill Addison is back on Taste. Now, I've long been a fan of Bill's writing, going back to his work in Atlanta, Dallas, San Francisco, and for the past three years as the head restaurant critic at the Los Angeles Times. Bill is my favorite critic writing about my favorite food city in the United States, and we talk about what's exciting him in L.A. right now. We also get into his writing routine, some of his favorite slept-on gems, and what the hell is going on at the row. This is such a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Bill Addison, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. So great to be back, Matt. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. You you were episode 53. We You had just started at the LA Times, and that was like in 2019, I believe. And Ooh, a lifetime ago. A lifetime yeah. ago. So much has happened. I just got back from LA, so I have some some hot takes. We'll get to that. First off, what Love have you that. eaten today? What, what what's been what's been what's, what's been fueling you? That's always a funny question <laughs> for a restaurant critic on deadline. I guess I will admit that I got um delivery today <laughs> and uh from a place called Dune that makes kind of like uh Mediterranean type food, and I got the uh, the lamb and hummus combo plate, no bread, sub yep. cucumber. <laughs> yeah, sub cucumber bread when you when you got four meals a night. I mean, you gotta you gotta like do that kind of work, right? You gotta yeah, save the carbs somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up deadline, and it sounds like you're on a writing deadline. And I asked, I've asked so many critics who've been on the show: Ruth Reichel, Ryan Sutton, Hannah Goldfield, uh, Pete Wells. This deadline, Bill, this deadline's real. It's like every week it comes. How do you how do you write? Like, do you do a vomit draft? Do you are you meticulous in crafting graphs at a time? What's your style? Yeah. I mean, the deadlines are really real and I have a hard time keeping up like every other restaurant critic or columnist that I know. Um, I've a two-pronged approach. First of all, I let myself either type or sometimes freehand write in a notebook um, because I'm still of that generation that likes to write in notebooks sometimes. And I just let myself rip for like, say, 20 minutes and I just write everything that comes to mind that stood out about a restaurant, that comes to mind about how it fits into the city, the cultural moment, et cetera. When it comes to the actual writing, I am... A perfectionist. Um, I'm sorry to say, I don't know any other way to do it. So I think really hard about what my lead is going to be and how I structure that lead and what I say in that lead. I default to describing a dish to lead into how I feel about a restaurant or what a restaurant is up to. Um, but because I do lean into that format, I try and think of other ways into a restaurant review to keep it fresh for me and for the reader. And then I often even write out an outline or a quick structure Ooh, note for myself. I love the outline, yeah, Bill. Like the nice. points, I know. 
Yeah, I need to I need to think it through or it's a really anxious process. I'm not a vomit drafter at all. Yeah. I'm not good at just getting something down and then going back to clean it up. It needs to be pretty ready to go. And and I think it's been a saving grace through my career, honestly, because um, I I'm a deadline pusher. But then I I usually turn in pretty mm-hmm. clean, ready to go copy. And so my editors let me get away with it. I love it. So when you say deadline pusher, are you sometimes going all the way to the last like two hours before they have to hit submit to the printing plant kind of pusher? Never, ever, ever. Okay. <laughs> never, never, never. <laughs> We're talking like a day, a day and a half late. Um, I, I have never. <laughs> You're like yeah, horrified I mean, by the, by the assumption of the question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think I just go like, you know, what kind of relationship I'd have with my bosses if that actually yeah. it would be what kind of relationship I have with myself. I would just be like yeah. <laughs> a, a twisted, anxious mess all the time. And I, I couldn't even do it. I'm, I'm already anxious about being a day late. So yeah. Yeah. No, when you when you are on deadline for when you've decided on what restaurant is up up that week, um, are you crafting um, that final draft like from that initial dr- sketch in like a day, or are you like working on multiple reviews at the same time? In terms of writing, it's one at a time. Yeah, I could never imagine. I mean, I might have taken notes about other restaurants, but if you're asking like this structural process that I just described, am I doing that more than one at a time? No way. I can only think about one thing at a time. Got it. That makes sense. And yeah. I think you have to like really keep it fresh and like you you can't like have multiple projects. It makes sense. Um, yeah. And it I, ideally it would take me a day and a half, two days to write a review. Sometimes um, I'm trying to be less perfectionistic Mm. and I just write it in a day and get it off to my editors and maybe, you know, clean up a sentence or two in the next day. But, but yeah, keep moving. Let's get into some nuts and bolts of of the actual job. And, and I first want to ask how much time do you actually spend in restaurants a week? And I bring this up because it seems the reviewing part, uh, you know, the calories and the travel that is difficult for any reviewer, especially in LA where you're driving a lot. But to me, the most difficult part would be like actually being in the restaurant. Restaurants are beautiful things when you're there as a guest and you're there once once a week, twice a week. But if you're there multiple hours a day, I have to believe that's got to be a challenge. Two things about that. One is I realized a long time ago that there is no job that anyone wants to hear anyone complain about less than restaurant criticism. So <laughs> true. <laughs> so there's that. And uh, also I've been doing this for almost 21 years. So it's the only life I know at this point. Um, and it's rough. I mean, I'll just say it. It's rough. I wish that I had my body back sometimes. I'm in restaurants most weeks, six nights. And several lunches out. Sometimes there are days spent running around for something specific I'm researching, sandwiches, breakfast burritos, mm. tacos, you know, things yeah. like that. There are there are multiple projects being researched at, at once. The directive these days, like most service journalism, um, lifestyle journalism is a lot of guides, projects, lists. And so I I have so much more than just the 
that kind of weekly schedule of, you know, this week is, yeah. uh, you know, a Shanghainese restaurant. Next week is, you know, a fancy new Italian restaurant, et cetera. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you got, you got to do the whole... roundups. You got to do the roundups as well as the actual reviews. And it sounds like our, our good friend Pete Wells is got a pretty good there because he's kind of just doing reviews, not doing too many roundups. Yeah, I would say that that Pete has a pretty singular position in restaurant <laughs> criticism these days. I don't, yeah. I can't think of anyone else in our field who who isn't um, encouraged to do the lists as well yeah. in in some capacity these days. Yeah. It, it's just the nature of the beast. I would rather be writing lists than having to do uh, the blog slog of circa 2008, 2009. <laughs> and suddenly all our bosses told us that we needed to be coming up with things to blog about every day. That that was worse. Give, given I've lived through that, mm. I will I will take your listicles. Yeah. Yeah. You'll take like the acai bowl roundup for the west side once a year <laughs> exactly <laughs> um yes. how much money do you spend out at restaurants uh, a year do you have like a budget or I'm, I'm i'm sure that might be challenging to answer but do you have like a round number of what you spend uh i don't think my publication would want me to say an exact number but i do a project every year where i name the 101 best restaurants in Los Angeles, and I return to every single one of those restaurants and more every year to keep it fresh on top of almost weekly reviews, on top of big projects. So you you can guess from that what my what, yeah. what my budget is is like. It is uh I am grateful. I, again, I feel like there are probably five publications, if that, in America where someone is given the budget to actually do the job in in such a thorough way. And I could not be more grateful for that. Yeah, your gratitude is is always felt. And, and when you write, you write with a real sense of pride and honor and and respect for, for what you do. And you bring up a point that I wanted to bring up because we just had Ryan Sutton on the show uh, this week during Restaurant Critic. One of one of the best restaurant critics in America, hands down. I love that you say that. I agree. He's he's tremendous. And and he just lost his job. He just lost his job at Eater. And we got into a little bit of, of his, you know, his say and his side of what happened there. And I don't want to relitigate that, but it feels there's a sense that restaurant criticism is dying. Of not a slow death, but a pretty middle to quick death. The restaurant critic who is keeping their their eyes and stomachs on the and the local community that they represent in their newspaper or their website, um, their unbiased uh, opinions about restaurants and and certainly budgeted to not take any PR meals and do it on their own dime. What do you got to say about that, Bill? I think that's absolutely correct, and it has been interesting to have been doing this job since the early two thousands when most every city of any size in America had at least three critics, a critic at the Daily Newspaper, a critic at the Alternative News Weekly, like The Village Voice or like LA Weekly, and a critic at the City Magazine. And I think together those voices might have covered different aspects of a dining, of a city's dining culture, and the city was better for it. I think having multiple critics in a city ends up challenging the other critics to stay on their game and 
both be true to themselves, but to push themselves either to, you know, be more critical or be more evaluative or think bigger about what's happening. And I think that informed both restaurant industry professionals and readers. And I'm sorry that energy is so dispersed now. Journalism has changed dramatically. Publications have gone out of business or are a fraction of what they were. Speaking of alt weeklies and often city magazines and daily newspapers, yeah, all of oh. it. Um, it's it's all the the models are not there to, as you just said, provide the budgets for restaurant critics to do the job ethically. Um, and of course, people can find plenty of information visual and written on social media and and there are a lot of smart informed opinionated voices weighing in that that aren't paid or are paid you know directly not paid directly um for their their opinions i don't know matt i i'm not Mm -hmm. sure that the job that i have will exist yeah. in its current form in the next five years. And mm. and I'm I'm sorry for it, but it's a reality that that I don't have any control. Yeah, you have no control. And and I I just have to lament and just like remember a time when I was reviewing restaurants in New York in two thousand eight when it was like Jordana Rothman at the time out, Robert Seats at mm-hmm. Village Voice, uh Frank Bruni at the New York Times or Sam Sift at New York Times, Jay Cheshis, uh Ryan Sutton at Bloomberg. And we had tables for two, which had multiple roving columns. And I think, and I'm forgetting, and Eater did not have a columnist at that. I think you had maybe joined later at Eater, maybe a couple years later. But man, I think if your point is so true about pushing each other to do a better job, to be competitive, mm-hmm. to make sure that bad reviews were not being pushed out as as like as grail and gospel. I just I I lament that time. Yeah, and it's interesting because New York is absolutely the center of media in America. And there have always been way more voices for restaurant criticism in New York than yeah. any other city. And yeah, I, I, you know, I wish that there were other publications to, to employ critics here. Um, I don't know. Somebody do it, please. Yeah, somebody do it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but what about one one idea, and we'll go on to talk about L.A. because I want to really get into your your really amazing city, your fine city. But, like, is there a model? Is there, like, a, you know, Patreon in the podcast world and in some media it works really well, and it really sustains criticism. Like, I got to believe, like, I pay Substacks all the time. Like, I love Substack creators. Why can't there be a model where a restaurant critic gets goes on Substack and and we pay them $5 a month for great reviews that are honestly really fucking tough and maybe a little bit blue in, in language that maybe the, the, the LA Times and New York Times can't print because of obvious reasons. Audience reach, uh, expense of the job, mm-hmm. grind of the job, need for a good editor and editorial support. I don't know. I mean, I have certainly wondered that and thought that as well. There is a a stalwart restaurant critic in Atlanta, Christian Lauterbach, who mm-hmm. um, wrote reviews and newsletter form called Knife and Fork for decades in Atlanta. And she was deeply respected. 
She also had a gig for Atlanta Magazine for a good while. She still does. Um, we worked together when I was the food editor at Atlanta Magazine for five years. But beyond that, I don't hmm. know anyone who ever created a sustainable model for themselves. Yeah, I would love to see that. And I would love to see it in Los Angeles. So someone's doing it. Yeah. And you're in from my way. I love it. <laughs> I'll be reading. Bill, great, yeah. great point, though. Great counterpoint about the grind of the job. You really do need it to be full time supported, you know, benefits. Also, the editor editing part is really, really, really well taken because Substack obviously doesn't have a lot of editorial support and reviews need editors because it is a real gut check moment in times when you're when you're doing these these appraisals. So and yeah, and I think the writing and restaurant criticism is paramount now mm -hmm. right i yeah. think it used to be a thing where it was like eat here check this out try these dishes this is kind of the atmosphere and service you can expect and you can get that information anywhere multiple sources without paying for it online on your phone wherever so actual restaurant criticism needs to bring not just thought but to me literature yeah and and so to do that in a newsletter form while you have a day job somewhere else, it's a lot. Yeah. Nothing's impossible. It, no. It's, you know, but yeah. I, I think it's, yeah. I think my my explanation kind of undersold what you do a little bit. And I, I love the counterpoint because you're right. It needs to be a work of journalism and not just, or work of art or work of real literature, as you said, because it's not where to eat, how to eat, all that kind of like bulleted out bullshit. No one wants to read that shit. Like that. that's what you get on TikTok or sorry, or Instagram, or, or sorry, whatever it may be. That is how we actually get restaurant wrecks in a more utilitarian way, which makes your job so much harder because everyone knows where to go. But let's like, let's actually read about it from a real writer. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I have such a privileged position in Los Angeles because there's so much here and there's so much that's interesting and there's so many cultures on cultures on cultures on communities on communities on communities here that I am never at a loss yeah. for something to write about that I feel excited to communicate about. Yeah. I I wonder how it is in in smaller cities <laughs> with less dynamic yeah. restaurant cultures. Yeah. I'm going to guess pretty pretty great and and I I think small communities you just have to find the story and I, I'm optimistic that a thriving restaurant review reviewer could live in in a in a smaller town like Madison, Wisconsin, or or Rockport, Maine. Right? Yeah, you know, Maine has so much happening. Yeah, yeah. Maine, Maine's great. That. Yeah, Maine's cool. Now I want to uh, get into LA because I I just returned. I was there for like four days working on Korea World. Um, I'm always going to LA. I love I love the food there, and I have some burning questions for you, Bill. Okay, just got some burning questions. First off, <laughs> what is up with Craig's? Like. What is your actual take on Craig's? I feel Craig's is a restaurant that is nearly impossible to get into. You hear celebrities like talking about it. Mark Marin has a weird thing about it and talks about it like way too much. But what do you think about Craig's? Uh, well, my partner is in the music industry, and we <laughs> had a funny thing at the beginning of our courtship where he wanted to take he was like how have you never been to craig's how have you never been to mr chow how have you and have you ever been to chaconis and and we were starting to eat together a lot and and then we would go to these restaurants i would lovingly concede to go to these restaurants and and we'd be eating 
pigs in a blanket at Craig's or, you know, mediocre pasta at Chaconi's. And he was like, oh, he was like, it's just about like the people who go here, isn't it? Yeah. I was like, yeah, it's all just like these places have been crowned by the kingmakers yeah. who treat them like royalty and that's their worth. And and I'm not going to disparage them further than that, but like I'm not going to go to Craig's and spend my own money and I'm not going to encourage anyone else to either because the people who go and love it and see Clive Davis across the yeah. dining room, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> but, no, and, and there is definitely a level of dining out in LA where you want that, like you seek that out. Craig's is interesting. I, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta eat those pigs in blankets one time. I mean, sure, yeah, <laughs> go just to experience it. Yes. <laughs> Next question, Damien Damien. I've heard many pronunciations. This restaurant came up a lot when I was talking to some of the local writers I was out with and people in LA. Seems like it's pretty good. I did not read your review, but it seems like that's a really good restaurant. Oh uh, yeah, I mean the the. The, What's it the called? headline of my review, I think, was something like how Damian grew to be one of L.A.'s finest modern California Mexican restaurants. And I I think the crew behind it settled into this, the city really well. Um, the, the chef de cuisine, Chuy Cervantes, um, grew up in El Paso um, and and has really settled into an aesthetic that I think Los Angeles can get behind some really cool um, like vegan stuff there. This like mm. crazy bulb of celery root that um, he and his team nixtamalize and bake and then braise and garlic and lemon and butter wow. and, and cover it with salsa matcha and uh, with a little smoke from, from Maritas. And, and then they, they set it in a pool of, of like mole blanco made from pine nuts. I mean, it's it's great. Well, mix, Nick Mall, I, I will go with you. I will go with you the next time you're back in town. I would love to. Nismalization with uh, with celery root instead of corn and all the croutons you talk about. Wow, it's, sounds really cool. Really good idea. It is. Yeah, really. It's that kind of smart thinking from another direction. It doesn't. It you know doesn't seek to cancel out anything that's here or say that it's better than anything you know here it's just doing its own thing which is mm. exactly what i think a restaurant of that um style should be doing i've not really read much about it but it it was announced with great fanfare the new alice waters restaurant in los angeles her debut in la lulu it feels like there's like zero heat with this restaurant it feels like no one's talking about it fair fair I haven't reviewed it yet. It's been open like a year and a half. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, here's the thing. It's in the Hammer Museum. It's a really sweet little place to go have some fresh California vegetables before you go upstairs to see the the cool Joan Didion exhibit curated by Hilton Owls. And I mean, I don't I don't have much more to say about it. It's it's if you didn't hear that Alice Waters was a, a curating force behind it, to, to use that word again, mm. because I think it's appropriate. Um, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't hear anything about it. Yeah. It's, I'm not saying it's terrible. It's just, I'm, it's, just it's, a, it's a museum cafe. Yeah, it's and, a museum cafe. I, bit of a nothing burger, to use a pun. 
it feels like yeah and i you know. i honestly haven't i actually kind of had not great service there too and i i hardly comment about service these days because yeah. you know this industry has been through so much and and labor challenges are are rife and complicated and so most of the time i'm i'm a very forgiving soul at this point in my life and career but even then i've been like okay you you just disappeared for 25 minutes where's our mm-hmm. museum food so anyway <laughs> sorry sorry all respect to alice Walker. yeah yeah it's, you know i mean she's done an extraordinary amount and i and i have written about how i feel like her legacy will especially live on in yeah people like andy baragani and samin nosrat who yeah. passed through her kitchen and written books that you know help people think about mm-hmm. new directions for food in this country no it definitely alice waters is a is a real national treasure and and should be celebrated but sounds like a, her restaurant may be a little bit of a miss now final question kind of rapid fire on my mind yes the row now the row downtown massive expansion from tartine and other places maybe 2018 2019 i don't know the actual timeline Closed with great fanfare, unfortunately. I always thought the row was like a little bit under, underdeveloped. But then being in LA a couple weeks ago, it sounded like there was a creep back into, like it was coming back to life. Like there were there were things happening at the row. I bring up the row because it's a it's a massive, massive structure, um, and it has so much potential. It seems from a from a New Yorker's point of view, certainly not a local mm. Angelino. But it's it just always has potential. There's Smorgasburg there on Sundays, which is a cool play, thing to, to check yeah. out. So tell me about what's up Absolutely. with the row. Uh, the row is a strange beast, but here's the thing about that the weird, multi, canyon, odd, <laughs> sprawling structure that is the row. I mean, it has three of the absolute best restaurants in Los Angeles mm. there. Um, uh Hayato, which is I have publicly said is what I believe to be the best restaurant in Los Angeles. The first outside of Arizona location of Pizzeria Bianco, which is just killing it. Yeah. And Cato, which is this incredible Taiwanese tasting menu restaurant from John Yao, a native of the San Gabriel Valley. Um so the people behind that project have have a really good sense of of culinary talent and and they've had some unfortunate setbacks some of which were pandemic related some of which were not but i like the row is a destination and smorgasburg is really important to this city in ways that it probably isn't um in the brooklyn outlet for the new york listeners like you should go to Smorgasburg on Sundays when you're visiting Los Angeles. It It is an incubator for mm-hmm. our up-and-coming up talent. Yeah. I go every time I'm there possible. I've, Zach Brooks is a friend and been going Zach since Brooks the great. first day, uh, one of the first days. Wow. And honestly, it's so uh, important to the city. I mean, Toda Verde, I think I, for the first time, had that. They're a great vegan mm-hmm. uh, Mexican. Uh, Mexican. Yeah. Yep. And I've, I think there's like, like, I've had Ugly Drum there. I mean, there are like so many cool restaurants. You just try it at Smorgasburg. And 
wish New York had something like it. Our version is a little more um, commerce driven, and and certainly there are some cool cool businesses there, but it certainly isn't like the the taste making that happens in L.A. So I'm glad you brought up Smorgasburg. Have you been recently? Are there any like young up and coming talents there that maybe we should hear about? Um, I have not been since uh, the start of the year, but I have. Um, I mean, I put it on the 101 for the first time. It just felt like a fun thing to do because I was coming through and like, ah, it's just so fun to follow the thread of where the the talent goes. Like I'm thinking of a taco pop-up called Machine that's really great. I'm thinking of Los Dorados, which are flautas, which are excellent. Mm-hmm. A couple runs a truck they call evil cooks, which is, yeah. uh, yeah. Have you, have you had, I know of the uh, name evil and cooks. I'm like, that's, yeah, that's rad. And I they, never had it. Yeah. They do this, uh, crazy, like octopus, um, trumpo that they shave from mm-hmm. for tacos and they make this gorgeous dessert flan taco. So there's just always so much to experience there. And yeah. I love that. I like kind of showing up every three months or so and just being like, okay, what is, what has revolved since the last time I was here and, and, and then watch where these people thread through the community. Yeah. I love that way you've put it in and definitely check it out. Most Sundays down at the row smorgasburg. I love it. Now I was in town reporting career world, as I mentioned, and I just wanted to get your take about what you're seeing in the Korean American food scene in LA. New York is really exciting right now. There's so much cool stuff with the Korean American chefs. And I feel I went to a couple places old school. I wasn't there that much uh, this time, but I want to get your sense of what's happening with uh, in Koreatown, out of Koreatown with Korean American food. I will almost defer this question because I I have to tell you, I'm thinking about it sort of long term for a story. Oh, nice. But what I find, yeah, what I find interesting here is that there are always Korean restaurants opening in our super vibrant, essential Koreatown, enormous Koreatown. There's so much depth. There's so much specificity. But there also does not seem to be the same momentum or or level of, of new direction thought as what I'm seeing in New York mm-hmm. or in places like San Juan, um, the Korean steakhouse in San Francisco from Corey Lee, which blew my mind. Yeah. Um, absolutely among the best new restaurants that I visited last year. And, and I'm thinking about why that is. Certainly there's a great restaurant that I know you've heard of here called Kin that does a short, affordable tasting menu. I think its baseline is $79. You can add one extra dish that's very worth getting. It's like a braised octopus mm-hmm. dish with gochujang aioli that's that's really fun. So if you get that, it's another 20 bucks. So it's $100 for the tasting menu. Nice. Smart wine list, um, cool crowd, mm-hmm. but there isn't more of that. And I, I'm thinking through why. So yeah, let's, let's make that an ongoing discussion. Yeah. Let's talk off Mike, because I feel like I have thoughts on that. The ones I went to, I went to, and these are probably very classic, but I went to young Mani for a gopchang, mm-hmm. which I thought yep. had a scene and like, I love grilled intestines and 
there was like a real like line there. I mean, it was like 45 yep. minute wait. Yeah. So, which is so frequent all through yeah. Koreatown at any time of night. Yeah. So I, it's, it is not lack of, yeah. of interest or audience. No. It's almost like, what does this audience want or what are restaurateurs willing mm-hmm. to risk that this audience wants? It's cool. I, I can't wait to read your, your assessment because I think the innovation here and maybe because there was a swarm of, of folks moving here during the pandemic from all over who had Korean uh, background or part of the Korean diaspora. Uh, a lot to think about. Uh, Bill, Bill I, I, got, I have a few more questions uh, about L.A. specific restaurants, but Bill, I'm, I have to ask you before I get to more L.A. questions or L.A. restaurant questions. The food desk at the L.A. Times has Lori Ochoa back running the food in some way. I don't know the official title. And then Daniel Hernandez, a great writer, is now the editor. And I just want to hear a little bit about the real the directive of the L.A. Times right now in the food section. Yeah, it's so great to have Lori and Daniel in leadership positions. Um, Daniel is just such a a smart thinker, um, a Southern California native, both he and Lori are. And so it's just great to have that perspective. Um, Lori's title is general manager of food, which is such an awkward and unwieldy, unwieldy (laughs) title, um, you know, from, from her vantage as well. Um, But it just means she's sort of in an, in an, like an, Think of it almost like an executive editor position for the food team specifically. Uh, I will say it was so meaningful for me to work with her on the 101 for the first time because she invented it. She invented that guide at LA Weekly when she was editor-in-chief after she returned from being executive editor, editor at Gourmet. And of course, Jonathan, her husband, wrote it. And I, so I think it was like special for both of us. Mm-hmm. She was an incredible sounding board. She has institutional knowledge, arguably like no one else alive. And she was very like, this is your list. Yeah. And cool. And, you know, and I, I really appreciated that. And, and having her support meant the world. Great to hear and, that. And so, yeah. And so I think, you know, to answer your, your question, um, honestly, I think the real directive at the, at the food section right now is just more, you know, we're, we're hiring more reporters. We have a guides editor to, to get the lists out that, that readers want and love. Um, you know, we have a great team of writers. And I, and so I think that it's just about, you know, kind of, Flooding the zone, as we used to say. Oh, yeah. Good old eater term, <laughs> which has been used in <laughs> lots of media. Flood, flood yeah. that zone. Man. Yeah. Okay, I have to ask yeah. you about another LA question. Neighborhoods, the city of neighborhoods, obviously. But is there a neighborhood that you're really excited about right now that you find yourself going to more than often than not? Yeah, that's such an interesting question for me because I see literal value like cultural value and and richness in every neighborhood. And that's not a trite answer. It's a true answer. And mm. if you live in Los Angeles, you know that to be true. I mean, it's it's just a funny time because let's say I'm I am eating more in Hollywood and at the edge of West Hollywood more than I have mm. in the previous four years. I think the answer to that equation is that that's where some of like 
the money projects are. And so that kind of like simmering through the pandemic kind of complicated capitalistic equation is resulting in in some of our great homegrown chefs, you know, getting these investments to to operate in hotels or to operate in splashy places. And so mm-hmm. so there's that. Um, you know, I'm I'm gonna encourage anyone who ever lands in Los Angeles and cares about food to go to the San Gabriel Valley and and eat from the wealth of options there. Um, you know, the latest thing I wrote wrote about from there is this really cool restaurant called uh, Louis Yan, and it's it's from uh, a couple who operated restaurants in the province around Shanghai, and they do a variation on Luru Fan, which mm, is cool. like braised pork over Love that. rice. Oh, um, so good! And that's a yeah, so good, and that's. A, a dish, you, you say Lumu Fan, particularly in Los Angeles, and you immediately think of the Taiwanese version yeah. because that's one of the essential rest dishes of Taiwan. And I'm, I'm taking nothing away from Taiwanese culture by saying that that is the absolute, you know, truth. And Lumu Fan is a broad term that, that basically refers to, to braised meat. Um, and, and theirs is delicious. Um, they, they sort of serve this, this pile of beautifully braised pork belly and other pork variations, um, like in a, in a, in a, an attractive little, you know, mountain and with a, a scoop of rice and some chilies on the side and some like, um, fermented long beans. And it's just like bright and delicious and rich and comforting and, and all the things you want. And that is just one, one of a thousand examples. In SGV, I got to go to Tam's yeah. Noodle House when I was out there. That was my one non nice. meal. I went and had some Cantonese <laughs> uh, lunch. It was amazing. I love that place. Yep. Long so. live Cantonese. I think a lot of Cantonese is evolving yep. outside of the SGV right now. Yeah. I think of places like Noodle and Pearl River Deli, Noodles in Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing this, oh my God, this custard french toast that oh, yeah. he yeah like the it riffs off of the the egg custard bowel that you get a dim sum but mm-hmm. he stuffs it <laughs> in french toast and fries the whole thing yeah oh it's so good yeah uh, these toast dishes the cantonese toasts like the hk toasts are so yeah different. exactly oh. like the that are riff off of the the cafe called the tea yeah. cafe culture there yeah thanks yes. for the thanks for the call in those neighborhoods i i, I think you're so right that you can't just like say, oh, this neighborhood's hot. And you avoided the question beautifully. Um, I love <laughs> I love the, the Dodge in, in the best way possible. <laughs> I own the Dodge. You man. own it, Bill. <laughs> a few more quick a few more quick questions. So you used to work as a pastry chef and and I yep. love that about your writing because you have such a great point of view when it comes to the, the final course of pastry. And I've asked a couple food writers and, and I've asked uh, Claudia Fleming this as well. And it's a great mm, episode. My favorite. I'll, my favorite too. And I li- I'll link to the show note that, that episode. Oh, yeah. Can LA support a dessert tasting room? Meaning you roll up at any hour and you can get three or four plated desserts in a row for like $75 or whatever, $44. I don't know what it is. And like, that's it. Can Is this an idea that can work in LA? I love this question, Matt. And my mind goes in a bunch of different directions. I want to say yes. My my very first impulse was 
maybe this is an iffy proposition because I think a lot having traveled for five years as Eater's national critic before this job about the difference between walkable cities in America and car-oriented cities in America and what thrives in one and not the other. I think, for example, that like jazz clubs or supper clubs have a better chance in walkable cities because there's something about the energy of like a place where you know you're going to kind of drink and hang out and and maybe that's better for walking or taking the subway after i wondered if that kind of rideshare culture would would change things i'm not sure it has but then i think about a place like sweet raku ah. in chinatown in las vegas right which is um exactly what you're describing and has a very distinct point of view. And people love that place, or or at least they did at the height of its powers pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. I, I can't quite speak for it as, as well right now. And so I want to believe that if somebody had the right perspective, the right angle, that the people would flock to it. Yeah. If Claudia Fleming wants to come to Los Angeles and <laughs> open a dessert cafe, she will probably have the love of every single <laughs> Gen X pastry yeah. chef or yeah. or cookbook aficionado who cooked from every page of the last course. And, yeah. you know, so. Bring on the Budino. Bring on the Budino. Got to say that. Yeah, well, I mean, and that, like, that's yeah. the most LA possible dessert, I right? Know, so I, know. I almost happened. think that, like, yeah. yeah, I almost think that, like, make the Budino, like, in a little tiny, like, like thimble full at the as your last taste in a, a dessert tasting menu restaurant because we're all we're all good on boudin. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, there's you're so cool. much else to do. No, yeah, good call, good call. <laughs> Bill, when do you feel the most pressure as a restaurant critic? Oh, that's a terrible question, Matt. I, I mean, when do I when do I not? Yeah. I feel I feel it constantly. It's a big responsibility. About, yeah, and having talked about how it's a a dying profession. One thing that is cool about the jobs that still exist is that it is an open frontier, meaning I don't think there is any one expectation about what a restaurant critic has to be anymore. If you are really a culture critic in disguise as a restaurant critic and you really want to focus as much on the issues facing the industry and the the ills of capitalism and society and how they affect restaurants, as well as telling people the top eight omakases to try <laughs> in a city, then, then 100% do it. I, I think that, that it's evolving in real time because of of its its disappearance yeah somehow it freeze freezes it up so so all that is to say that i i am not a culture critic and and some people may see that as a weakness i try to be incredibly thoughtful in what i do write and i try to bring the culture into the reviews or how i'm thinking about things when it's appropriate yeah. sometimes talking about uh, a great Lulu fan is is enough. 
yeah. please just go eat this and and my job will will be done. It's a privileged pressure and I'm aware of that as well. And I, you know, I'm 50 and I won't be doing this for the rest of my life. I shouldn't be doing this for the rest of my <laughs> life. You have but, some good years in you, Bill. You get some but good I years. hope I have a few good yeah, years yeah, yeah. left. And that's, I like that's what I have to say on that. Yeah. I like your point about like delineating the the cultural criticism point at part of restaurant reviewing and then the real service oriented part and how some some folks have a, a separate flavor, have a different flavor, and, and others have a different flavor. I mean, it's, it's like there's no right way to review a restaurant if you're doing it well. That's my uh, that's my take. Um, so I'd love that point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just about being, you know, uh, a fresh thinker and a fresh writer too. Yeah, I mean, yep. you know, when we talk about like great restaurant critics and and the death of journalism, you know, like Soleho who just announced that she is moving to the opinion pages of the San Francisco Chronicle after being the critic for four years, you know, didn't have any real place to, to be a restaurant critic before this job. She was hired based on the amazing writing and podcasting that she had done about restaurant culture before she started. And she brought that into the job. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember very clearly the, the day, gosh, I'm going to say it was like, whatever, 2011, but I'm just guessing hmm. that the the Beard Awards were announced and this name came up for for restaurant criticism that I'd never heard of before. And my friend Besha Rodell, who's now in Australia as a restaurant critic, was in LA before I was, is one of my best friends. We were like, who's Tejal Rao? Mm-hmm. Like Tejal Rao writing for the Village Voice. And we went and read this astonishing writing that was so it was like poetic without being pretentious and was direct and yeah. was inspiring. And, and we were like, this is it. This is the future of restaurant criticism in America. And, and that's always changing. But, you know, Tejal too is, has transitioned into more of a critic at large position um, while still based in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So it's just shifting. And yeah. it's a fascinating time. I'm glad you brought up Tasia. And we'll see what comes up. Great, yeah. great call I mean, bringing up the, I'm glad you brought the anecdote up. She's, yeah, I remember those early voice days. I have to say, listener, if you made this far, you're engaged by Bill, you should be. He's just an incredible resource and just such a great speaker of food and food culture. And honestly, this is a shout out. Subscribe to the LA Times. I've been doing it for about five years. It comes every morning. You open up the the box and you get the PDF of the paper and it's really easy to use, and I read it every Sunday to read Bill and his colleagues. I love the paper. I think it's my favorite food section in the country. I say that with with respect to all other food writers, but you guys do a terrific job. That means so much, Matt. Thank you. No. Thank you. It's legit. Absolute truth. I get to expense it too, which is nice. <laughs> Sorry. Right? Yeah, that is like, no. <laughs> no, like, no, but, but I— But please, it's only a buck. No, it a really is. A buck a month for like six— Six months or something. I'm kidding. Try it, folks. No, I'm, I'm, I am, but I, I really, I, I honestly, I pay, I pay for it. And it's really a great, a terrific paper in general. And, and the way they cover, uh, the LA Times covers um, overseas uh, conflict, especially in Asia. I think not just conflict, but just news is is just different from the New York Times. And I, I love the way it covers Asia. Yeah, I do too. And the and the Middle East, I really respect our, our Middle East um, bureau chief a lot. So that's yeah. great work. Now, I just have a couple more questions before we wrap up have to ask you've never asked you this when we've hung out or just in general what is well on the clock of the la times the single best meal you've ever had 
Okay, well, this is going to be kind of a boring sure. answer because it is, you can read about it in the the latest 101 Best Restaurants in Los Angeles guide that came out in December, but it is absolutely Hayato. And mm-hmm. so Hayato is a tiny seven-seat restaurant in Row DTLA that only serves five days a week. So we're talking 35 customers a week. Um, it's $350 a person. I know. Um, <laughs> you, heard it the, is, you heard it, the gasp by everybody. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a, a tasting menu that incorporates, um, he, he would call it capo riori, um, which is kind of a, a broad term for refined plates in traditional Japanese cooking. So some kaiseki in there, all these different expressions of cooking, steaming, frying, Mm. um, grilling, raw, mainly focused on seafood. And and what's exceptional about it is that the chef owner, Brandon Hayato Go, like he orchestrates it in a way that's so seamless and so comfortable that it always ends up feeling like a dinner party. I've been four times um, in my my time at the LA Times, so so roughly once a year. I took Gloria Choa last time I was there, and she was like, because I was like, I want to give this number one, but it's so expensive and it's so hard to get into. Mm-hmm. But even if I just do it once, even if if on this ranked list, I only, you know, give it number one once, like I want to be honest with readers yeah. and say like, if I was saving up my money for one blowout meal in Los Angeles a year, what would it be? It would mm-hmm. be this one. And and at the end of the evening, Lori was like, mm, yeah, it's a good choice. I see where I see <laughs> Great where rubric, though. I was like, okay. Right. I was like, validation from Lori. Yeah. That's all I need. Yeah. Here we go. Hi, Opto. So, so that's it. And, and man, you know, I, I could, you know, go on and on about telling, you know, telling you about the incredible, you know, Shrimp taco I I had, you know, last week or mm-hmm. the the shawarma stand in Hollywood is under new ownership from a Syrian guy who came here from Venezuela who's legit, who's got mm-hmm. is in Arabic, it's nafas, like he has the spirit, mm-hmm. the breath of the cooking in his hands. It's incredible. What an incredible you know, poetic name. Wow. Dang. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, anyway, so LA. Yeah, it's LA, real, real, real town. What a town, <laughs> uh, Bill. We have to, we have to illustrate you. Uh, you, you are anonymous. We've talked in the last podcast about why. I don't think we need to relitigate that. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, but what, what do you want to be I, illustrated as? Yeah, I would just say um, to that point super quickly that um, I'm, I'm a little more relaxed about it now. Oh, I do this job for four years. No, it's. I don't want to show my face. Okay, I was like, are we like, showing your face? No, no, are we no, doing no, it? You're not showing my face. But I'm just saying, like, it, it's inevitable. There are chefs who recognize me. I, I don't want an experience that's, that's yeah. different from anyone else. You know, who, anyone else. Period. Anyone else who looks like me. I think that's also quantitative. But it's, um, it just makes my life easier, <laughs> and that's what I'm. You know, that's the reason. It's not this whole like I used to be like I'm a spy and you'll never catch no, me. And, like, no, no, no. That's just crazy. Yeah, we we that's that's kind of what I was getting to. We don't need to talk about like any kind of like disguises, but yeah, it, it makes a lot of Correct. sense. Correct. So, what are we going to draw you as? Let's talk about a food. Like, we want to draw you as an actual food. 
Like something Did that you we, draw me as a crab last time? Yes, it was, it was a Maryland crab. It was really it great. It was a Maryland crab because I'm a Maryland crab I, guy. You know what? <laughs> I'm an LA, Matt, I'm an LA guy now. Illustrate me as an avocado. I love that you you will be an avocado in our in our art with this with this great interview, Bill. We ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or mm. the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book. Bill, what would that book be? Um, I will quickly answer your question with two parts. The cookbook would be I would become fluent in Lebanese Arabic, which I'm already studying, and I would wander that beautiful endangered country and record its foodways from head to toe. And if, if I could write, um, uh, any book about food culture, I would write a, an experiential journey into the intersection of food and spirituality, Mm. food and religion, food and faith. I've always been fascinated by that. I would go, live at a Buddhist retreat and cook the meals while, while people are in intense um, retreats, meditation retreats. Mm. I would join people making huge Ramadan feasts and Passover and mm-hmm. go to church suppers. I just, there's, there's so much to be explored there. And it's, it's not the sexiest or the quickest subject. Yeah. So I would, I would need that, that wish. Yeah. That, uh, that magic, no deadline, that unlimited funds. I love that answer. Yeah. I, I think spirituality and food is, is undercovered. It is difficult because of politics, but also just maybe not the tip of the tongue, 50 quick meals or, you know, the cool culture story that we want to write, but I love. And I feel like telling stories like that would, would help transcend politics. Yeah. I know that politics in some ways can't and shouldn't be transcended, so I don't need to to downplay that either. But there are, there are many stories to tell, and I would love to tell yeah. them. Bill Addison, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Matt. Great to talk with you again. Hey, Eliza, what's up? Hey, Matt. Not much. How are you? I'm good. We are wrapping up Restaurant Critic Week. Um, we just heard a great interview with Bill Addison. And I wanted to, like, get you in the studio to talk about restaurant criticism. I'm happy to talk about restaurant criticism. <laughs> the state of restaurant criticism. I'm riffing a bit. David Chang just went on his podcast and went, like, 45, 55 about the topic. Yeah, I feel like... Um... It's not really something I think about a lot. And then all of a sudden everyone is talking about it. And then I really have to sit down and think, wow, when was the last time that I read a restaurant review and what was I looking for? I hate to say that out loud because I I do respect um, the amount of work that goes into them. I think that like as somebody that um, doesn't eat out at restaurants a ton these days, like I always read the new Pete Wells review Mm -hmm. in the Times um, just out of curiosity and because I like reading about them. Yeah. And I read um, the LA Times ones as well because those are the two cities that I eat in the most. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily like following the full breadth of restaurant reviewing that's that's going on. Oh, I mean, that's fair. I, I, I totally am the same. I, I think I, w- I thought maybe you didn't read any. No, I read uh, them occasionally. But, yeah. I, you know, I don't think I think you probably read them read them more than me if I had to venture. I mean, I read Wells. I read Addison. I read Sutton. I, who are on our show, I read Hannah Goldfield in The New Yorker when I can crack the paywall. Um, Sorry, New Yorker. I will get into some of my favorite critics, but I wanted to first talk about the actual review. 
Do you think restaurant criticism matters? Yeah, I think I would say it does because I know that it impacts the restaurants that are being reviewed. Um, I don't know if it matters in the same way that it did pre-social media, pre-Google Maps, like all of these TikTok, all the other ways that people are finding reviews these days. Um, And I I don't know about... um, like the readership necessarily. But I don't know how you could say it doesn't when I know that like, you know, my friends have worked at restaurants, have talked to chefs who have had a big review come out and they Mm -hmm. see the influx of people. Like clearly there is a cause and effect going on. Absolutely agree. I think it's almost a dying art. And I think Bill gets to it in his interview about how it is like the the final days of the well-funded restaurant critic at a major daily newspaper. Right. Which is where they have traditionally sat, though Eater for a while had a couple critics full time, but they've certainly scaled back as well. It's a, it's a tough ROI, all the money put into it for like, you know, two to three articles a month. But I think like um, like Renaissance poetry and, and other topics, uh, it, it will be studied forever. And I think there will be an appreciation for the restaurant review. I just don't think they'll be as frequent. Yeah, you know, it kind of reminds me of recipe development happening at publications that put funding into like cross-testing recipes and going through that whole process. I think there's like a lot of the work that isn't necessarily translated into the final product for people. So you might think, oh, why do I need a restaurant review? And I can go on TikTok and get a review from somebody with photos and video of them eating right then and there. And what you don't necessarily know is the amount of times that reviewers will go back to a restaurant and all the work that goes into that. I I mean, I didn't do the interviews, so I think you would know more than me. But like, is there a number that most reviewers are going to a restaurant before they write it? It seems we didn't really talk about budgets specifically. I think they were a little um, cagey about Mm -hmm. that topic. But I, I think Wells is like three to five. That's like well stated. I think I would imagine Bill is less um, just because he's working on the 101 big project every year. So he's working. It's more of a bandwidth issue for him. But back to my initial question, um, do they matter? I just wanted to also answer my own question and say, I think they matter. I think they're works of literature, works of journalism versus pure service. And I think we sometimes get weighted down by this idea that they have to tell you everything right away and if it's good or not and be pure service. I think there's a real art to it. And I think anybody who loves food writing um, will be attracted to particular critics and will read them every week because of their skill as a writer. Yeah, the whole reason why I got interested in food writing and and probably even culture writing more broadly is that I grew up in Los Angeles in the Jonathan Gold era, and I really was reading all of his reviews and following them with my family, and I think like that really did prove to be a gateway for food for me. Yeah, so I wanted to get into some of our favorite current and, and past critics as well. So you've got Gold on your list. When you were reading Gold, were you reading him in the Weekly and the LA Times, or do you remember which pub? Was it both? Yeah, I think it was both. I remember when he moved over to the LA Times, that was a big moment that yeah. we were talking about um, because I think like the style of his food writing and in general the kind of restaurant writing that I'm most interested in was that he was um, giving attention to places that maybe like weren't getting respect and attention right. in LA in that moment and like in the broader discourse around like strip mall restaurants, like taco stands on the street, things like yep. that. Um, so I think that was like a big part of the draw for me and also just his prose and the fact that he was a music writer also I really mm-hmm. liked. I felt like there was a lot of melody in what he was writing about and that you could really tell he was writing from the position of somebody that just loves to eat and would be the best person to dine out with. Absolutely. Um, I feel like gold winning the Pulitzer was a big moment for him, but it was well-deserved because he did create a form. And I think Pulitzer awards, um, 
critics who are original and pure originality and the way he would have I love that you said it has was it you said rhythm or yeah and melody 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 to his writing um do you remember going to any specific restaurants that he was like you need to go here and actually taking your car and driving several you know an hour or so out of, out of the way yeah absolutely I remember um the Kogi taco truck yeah I think I found out about through gold and that was like the beginning of a whole taco truck do you remember when taco trucks were a thing yeah totally well kogi with roy Choi, you know inventing the korean taco yeah um and inventing a category that has been copied over around the world i remember that i remember going to jeet la da in yeah. thai town in la to eat thai food for the first time because of that yeah uh, or not the first time eating thai food but my but, first time going to jeet la da for yeah sure. jeet la da because of the crit uh, the, the gold column yeah, yeah exactly and this idea of like um trusting somebody in that way that like he didn't often write reviews to bring a restaurant down it was mostly because he wanted to send the la times readership their way yeah i love that do you know that he walked the the he walked olympic basically the expanse of olympic yeah was it olympic or pico was Um, it pico i thought it was olympic but he oh it was pico i'm not sure i wish i could pico's north south right yeah that was like his first duty when he came to the times right it was that he went to every restaurant it was pico i thought it was east west i think it was olympic actually yeah i think it was east west just because the east west you know route takes Mm -hmm. you through a little more pico he certainly hung on pico quite a bit yeah, no, I, I think um, I'm well, going to get my L.A. cred taken well, away from Nah, me. <laughs> nah, I think you might be right about Pico. Whatever it is, he walked the distance of a street and wrote about many of the restaurants yes. on this walk. I love that. Yeah, which I think is a really great, like, L.A. way also because um, it's talking about the specificity of different places in the city. Yeah. And also maybe, like, you know, you can walk to places. You don't have to drive. <laughs> I love that. What uh, about What about you? Yeah, I have a list of of some of my favorite critics. I had to think about it because I wanted to go on record and say these are the folks I really enjoy their restaurant criticism. I'm not talking about food writing in particular, but just restaurant reviews. First one is Mike Sula at the Chicago Reader. Uh, Great food town. And the reader, I'm not actually sure about the status of that role, but what Mike would do, similar to Robert Sitsema, who is also uh, a fan of his work, he would really shine a light on, um, uh, you know, out of the way, typically restaurants from, you know, a non-white point of view, which I think a lot of the criticism, particularly at the, the Chicago Tribune, was focusing on more of the white dude chef. Mm-hmm. So Sula was doing that kind of work that was important, and many of the readers loved him for that. Yeah, definitely. I think like Lee Gaia Michon and her Hungry yeah. City column that she did at the Times, which I think has been on hiatus since the pandemic, is a similar version of that writing and also like Jonathan Gold's writing and that it's um, kind of uplifting these undersung, like mostly immigrant run restaurants. Absolutely. And I think Lee Gaia's work in the in the New York Times magazine has been pretty great. She's a, one of the columnists there, I believe now. So she's writing all about culture. Yeah, I have a, a crush on like every time she's written something. It's like 2000 words on niche citrus. I'm like, wow, why didn't I get to write that? <laughs> no. She's she's a real pro. A couple other names. Karen Brooks at the Port, Portland Monthly. Karen has been there, I would, I'm would i going to say, over two decades. And the reason I like Karen, even though Portland isn't like the city I go to that much, I just enjoy when I can peek into her review and, and get it on my feed. I think it's like giving me a sense of history about a city that's changed so much as a restaurant city. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, the regional food writing is really helpful, especially when you're going to a city and um, you're trying to figure out where to eat to be able yeah. to, like, have that archive is really nice. And I like Karen, too. She's the type of writer who who's a lifer, and she, like— 
flexes that a bit, but not in a way that's like, I know everything, like voice of God type of criticism. I think what she does is she has like a historical knowledge, but she definitely doesn't, she's a well-liked in the city. And I think that is important that she doesn't like come down with fear, but more of a, of a, of a fan of the restaurants of Portland. And I just, I just love her writing. She's cool. And she's cool too. I have to go read it. Yeah. A couple other names, Tammy Teclamarian. Love now, Tammy. Absolutely. Guest of the Taste podcast. I, I think... The, the year of eating, the work she did week in, week out was still, to my in my assessment, the best food writing of the past five years. Just collectively, you know, not everything, like, hit a home run, but, man, just the, the stamina and the just the, the quality of each of those sends. The new person I don't like as much, just being honest. Mm, I just, Alex? Yeah, I didn't mean to, didn't want to, don't want to be a hater, but I, I just feel I like Tammy's uh, weekly in the mix, writing about the scene, but also writing a lot about the culture of New York dining, which New York Magazine is so well regarded for. And yeah, I just, I really like her. Yeah, I remember a couple like sentences from her that really stick out for me. And I say sentences, but obviously these were just full pieces online yeah. as well. Um, but the piece that she wrote about Casa della Mozzarella up on yeah. Arco Ave in the Bronx, I think I like planned a whole trip up to the cloisters <laughs> knowing that I could easily drive over and get one of those sandwiches afterwards, yeah. which I think like any writing that makes you want to journey out into a part of New York that you don't go to is like exactly yeah. what the kind of restaurant reporting New York magazine should be doing. Yeah. I, I like some of her peeks inside, like some of the more sceny restaurants downtown and just poking fun at like the absurdity of it all. And yeah. just like dining solo at bars. I think she, she always at the bar, she would always um, draw a conclusion that was always pretty pretty biting, which I liked. Yeah, I think I like, every time I walk into a restaurant, I kind of peek at the bar now to see if I'm going to see her over there because I just yeah. expect that she's going to be stationed by the bar, like eavesdropping on the conversations. Yeah. Let's get into a conversation about who should be a restaurant critic. I'd love to get your take on, on a food writer or even a writer or even a person who maybe doesn't write who you think should have one of these coveted, well-funded roles in food media. Mm. I kind of want to make you go first. Okay, on that. I can go first. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm down to go to warm warm me up. All right. Um, now this list, this is I'm biased. Some of them are friends, and also um, I certainly don't know everyone out there. I just is just like in front of me right now. My old colleague Talia, Talia Bayoki. There's nobody in food media in New York who loves restaurants and is as pointed in both the positive and negative about restaurant spaces and meals and people in the space than Talia. She's just phenomenal. Like she's such a restaurant fan and I love her taste and I love her writing. So I hope she one day, if she shall decide that she wants to be a restaurant critic, which I kind of doubt she does it. <laughs> if we're in the spirit of nominating our we're nominating. our old co-workers that we're fans of, I think I would say Elise Inamine, who was the yeah. restaurant editor at Bon Appetit when I was there. Similar confluence of just loving her taste and thinking that she thinks really holistically about restaurants in the industry and what kind of change people can try to make within that. Um, I loved the way that she kind of led that section when I was there, mm -hmm. and I love her writing. So I think um, selfishly just to have more recommendations on places to go. Yeah, Lisa's amazing. She's written for Taste, and, and I, I follow her on the gram, and she's she's a good she's a good 
just great taste. Yeah. Yeah. I would also say like to speak of categories, I was talking with Sola um, Awili off the mic, I think about just how it would be really cool to have a chef um, or someone with like a lot of restaurant industry experience that also is a writer doing yeah. restaurant criticism and just coming from the other side of yeah. things. One day that will happen. I think the 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 chef transitioning to full-time writer, you've got like David Leibovitz, you've got some folks out there, David Tannis, um, there's probably another David that I'm forgetting, but there's a lot of examples of, of chefs who've crossed over, but I love that point. It's it's cool. It would be really cool to have an, an industry person. Honestly, Amanda Cohen. Mm. I feel Amanda Cohen, she's hilarious. She's extremely smart and is all about the industry. It's hard because, like, she's current working chef, so she probably doesn't want to burn down any houses or anything Yeah, as a critic. Yeah, I think that way. Or, you know, Gabrielle Hamilton, I think, is yeah. such a strong writer. Definitely. And obviously, like, Prune occupied such a specific place in the mm-hmm. city. I think they are reopening, so I don't really imagine her stepping into that role. But It would be, I, you know, she had the column at the Times, and she definitely um, is somebody who, who has such skills um, as a writer. Um, I have a couple more. I have a couple more names. I got a, Jordan Michaelman. Mm. Very, very biased because he's a columnist here. But I got to say, he is such um, in within within a space like occupying a restaurant with him during a meal or just like popping in for a drink. I feel like he's got extreme point of view and and vision about what he wants to say and what he wants to write about. So. That's a long way of saying I think he's got great taste and I think he could be a great critic. That's all you need. Well, that's not all you need. You need no. a lot of things. You need endurance. That's, that's the other point about Jordan. I think you, you need somebody with endurance and somebody who's willing to go out and, like, do the work. And I've seen that time and again with his journalism. So he's, he's on my list. Um, Jason Stewart. What do you think about them jeans? Oh, no comment. No comment. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> have a lot of uh, fans around. No, he, he has fans. I, I bring up Jason, who's a who's a podcast host. Uh, he does a show How Long Gone. He's also um, a longtime L.A. food uh, influencer slash in the mix. Um, he kind of has great taste, sneaky great taste in restaurants and and in home cooking. You're like not. You're just like, no. I trust. I trust you. I think like I don't. He's a friend of yours, and he writes for us. And I have no disrespect. I think no. that like what I'm looking for is not necessarily somebody that knows like all the trendy places to go, but somebody that knows like yeah. the opposite of that. And I just don't know him to know whether or not like that's his yeah. view. It probably isn't. So cross him off. He hasn't written for Tasty. I'm trying to get him, but he's he's pretty booked up these oh, days. Oh, okay, okay. Well then, no no harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. <laughs> no. One more previous guest. Gary Steingart, the novelist slash travel writer. Why? I feel like he is always poking at big topics on Twitter. And I, I think that's a great place to start when you talk about like the endurance and like the repetition needed to be a critic. Um, I haven't read much of his travel writing. I've read his novels. I'm a big fan of his fiction. But I just think if you want to get into that literary, like he's just a solid writer, obviously. I mean, I just love Gary and he's got such an imagination. So if a restaurant critic came at it with a little more of a literary point of view, which I think back in the day, Sifton, that was his vibe. Mm. Well, I think it's it's hard because you think about like, what is the service for the reader? And ideally like a piece does everything, right? But yeah. I feel like... Um, a lot of people feel like when they read a review, they want a game plan of what the restaurant's going to be like and what they should order and, like, all of these things that don't necessarily lend themselves to the vibe of the place or something that's more literary. I think 
I kind of disagree, Eliza. Huh. I think that's why I like Tammy. Like when you read Tammy's dispatches, they weren't like here's the all the dishes. Like here's what I need to order. Hers was a lot of like writing around some of those boring topics and more about like let's have a cultural report every week about the restaurant that I'm at and say something bigger. And I think that's why I'm saying like a guy like Gary is um, maybe a candidate. Bill, on the other hand, Bill is more traditional in the structure of his reviews. Fantastic writer, always has solid leads. He, we talk about his the craftsmanship of his leads and how that's super important for newspaper writing. But he still is very service-oriented with his reviewing, very much like this is what you need to order, this is what missed the mark. But I guess I'm a little torn because I just think sometimes these things are more than just that. They're like literary documents of a time. Well, I agree with you, but you and I are also like the editors on the mic that love that. I don't know if like the average yeah. reader necessarily is looking for that. I hope th- I hope that. that they are because that would be good for everyone. I agree. I think good point. Yeah, we're, we have a different point of view than, than actually someone who just wants to go out and eat. Mm-hmm. Um, one last topic on kind of this restaurant criticism state of the union we're having here. Very formal. Very formal. Uh, TikTok critics. I feel like uh, we need to talk about TikTok because TikTok is a great format for restaurant reviewing. I think video, short form video on the phone and also the way that TikTok's algorithm is very much geotagged and geocentric. So if you are in Boston and you are looking for a restaurant review, you're likely going and you hit a lot of, a lot of hearts. You're going to get into that algorithm of restaurant reviewers. Now, Keith Lee, a former UFC fighter, is probably, he has over 10 million followers on TikTok, and he's definitely one of the largest, most influential food media members around right now. Keith Lee. This is blowing my mind. Yeah. What, is, what is, like, the style of review that he's doing? I can't say I've, I've really do- dove into Keith Lee's content that much. Um, my understanding is he's done a lot of work with, with smaller restaurants, and he's more of a champion of, this, of the little guy. And because of his platform like Guy Fieri in many ways, he can bring the masses to some small mom and pops, which to me, that that makes me so happy. He's not like, you know, doing straight criticism. He's more of a champion of, of restaurants. But I also, from the few videos I've dipped into, I think he has a, a really strong culinary sense and point of view. That's really cool. I think that it's interesting because my first reaction to what you just said was to say that's not really criticism yeah. if you're not giving criticism. But then when I think back on me talking about how much I love Jonathan Gold and Lee Gaia and how like yeah. uh, they're championing these restaurants, it's just with more word count. So maybe like that isn't as much of a valid thing for me to say. I do think that like the issue I have with TikTok reviews and Instagram reviews and all of that is just um, feeling like how do I trust this person and – um, really, like, dig into what they're trying to say about something, and there's really only so much you can do in a 30-second video. Thanks, Liza. I'll let you have the last word. Anytime. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 